and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. Today on the podcast, I will be interviewing Kent Dobson. He is the author of a book called Bitten by a Camel, Leaving Church, Finding God. He's the host of the excellent podcast, Hints and Guesses. He is the lead teacher at C3, West Michigan's Inclusive Spiritual Community, and he is in the Soul Apprenticeship Program at the Animus Valley Institute in Durango, Colorado. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm very excited to talk about a lot of topics we're going to get into, which people can see in the show title. Uh, One of the first things I wanted to ask a little bit about was a little bit more about your biography, uh, as I believe it will relate a lot to what we're going to get into today. Yeah. Um, Well, some of it is is actually in in my book, Bitten by a Camel. I do try to, to, in a somewhat chronological way, talk about how I grew up, which is in evangelical Christianity, in a pretty fundamentalist Baptist kind of place. My dad was a pastor. And I kind of went to the top of that world, meaning I eventually became a mega church pastor, whatever that is. Um, and at that point, the I guess the wheels started coming off. Um, and in, not in one fell swoop, but a whole series of things um, that led up to that, including um, I studied in, I went to graduate school in Israel for a few years, and that was the beginning of my disillusionment and unraveling when it comes to the biblical text and sort of the the origins of how I understood faith. Um, yet I, in a way, I tried to patch all that back together mm. and say, I just, I got to keep going, you know, and, um, but so, so I guess in some ways, once I reached the the top of that world, I just, something was wrong. And um, in that sense, I started a more serious kind of descent um, and and break from from that uh, from that world, but without knowing at all where I was going. There was not an alternative. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to quit being this and now I'm this. There was no conversion. You know, right. it was more um, like at the beginning of. Uh, the Inferno, Dante says something like, in the middle of my life, I awoke in a dark wood. That's mm. what it felt like. It was a kind of waking up, but a kind of lostness at the same time. Um, and, you know, ever ever since, uh, I guess in many ways, I'm still in that chapter of my life, but um, that sort of led me down the path of eventually writing about this kind of exit and descent process a bit, um, and also taking more seriously the call of the soul and what is this thing and dreams and underworld work and all this kind of uh, and and psychotherapy. I went, you know, I, I went and got a therapist. You know, all the all the stuff that um, begin to expand who I thought I was in the world, or I began to discover um, who I thought I was in the world. Uh, there was something beneath that is probably a better way to say it. So that's not really a bio. I guess it's a little bit of uh, coloring, I guess. Well, I like that. Whatever it was, I liked it. So I'm, and if listeners want to know more, it's an excellent book. I would recommend reading it. And also, what I did was audible.com, and I have no sponsorship. So just go for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you can hear all about Kent's uh, background. But I, I really think what you're starting to delve into is what you're into right now. And this part of your life where I guess we can call it a descent. Uh, you started with disillusionment 
And I think I, from hearing your podcast and sort of what you've been into lately, you're really drawing on many sources to be able to understand what you're going through, even though it's kind of a mystery now. I mean, there's like that second, I mean, I guess what, I think it was Hollis calls your second part of life or Jung called your second part of life where things aren't orderly anymore. That's right. Yeah. The old order doesn't work or the series of tools that you've collected and maps that you're collect, you've collected on the way don't, don't work. It's not like they're, they're totally irrelevant. It's just they don't work in the same way. Something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and just as you were, you were speaking now, it is a bit of a mystery. Like maybe, maybe, maybe most people are like this. If they really contemplate, how did I end up right here in this seat talking to you, for example? I mean, no amount of calculation could ever weave together such a weird narrative. And same with the kinds of things that I'm into, like Jung and uh, or a Bill Plotkin or or Hollis or, or or Hillman or those were not on my reading list in college, right. you know. And so how did I how did I fall into this? It's kind of like a trap door, and and it is a bit of a mystery. Although in hindsight, you, I guess part of the ego tries to make sense of it. And there were some um, some early invitations in my own kind of spiritual wanderings that that I think led me down a certain path. I think one of those people is Richard Rohr. He started saying things. And I was like, wait a minute, that's not exactly the Christianity I grew up with. And it seems way more expansive on the one hand and also way more challenging. And um, there's almost a, a direct line uh, between Richard Rohr and sort of Bill Plotkin for me because he started talking about some of Plotkin's things. And and, I, and Richard Rohr has a book about rites of passage. And I was like, what the hell are these? Ah, yeah. And, and like, it like, I felt a kind of longing. It tapped a kind of longing I didn't know was there. And, and, it's, it, and I guess that, that longing is what started to wake up. And then you just follow that where, wherever the weird road leads you in a way. Yes, um, just couple things that sparked my mind about that was one of my mentors has always said the the western world has no agreed upon rites of passage Mm -hmm. culturally because of well i guess he's specifically talking about the united states in that sentence because we're all from somewhere else and uh, and there's a whole collection of narratives and differences and cultural pressure and spiritual religious influences that can make us up and we haven't collectively agreed on it and so he says usually what happens is something terrible happens and then that's your rite of passage (laughs) is getting yourself out of that yeah you're you're right in that or the agreed upon rites of passage are much more in the realm of entitlements like i get to drive because i'm 16 i get to vote because i'm 18 and i can smoke cigarettes and play the lottery, you know, right. I, and, and, and we even treat those, or even when you graduate from, from high school, oh, well, now I get to go to college and I get to have a party where people are going to give me money. That's not a rite of passage. In a way it hints at it because like the timeline is right. That's the timeline, the traditional historic timeline when, when you're either going to become an adult or not. So the culture almost says we have to have something, but then what it's come up with is just 
largely entitlements and and uh, I guess that yeah I uh, I don't know if there if if I can if there's more to say about that it's just kind of paper thin maybe and it's conf- I think it's also confusing for young people and I know I was confused as all get out because I think you think there's got to be something more going on deep there's got to be a depth to this there's got to be something it's not just that. Uh, I, I had an open house and everybody gave me money and now I'm 18 and now my parents can't quote, tell me what to do anymore. And now what does that mean? Now I have to establish something. What is my story? And, you know, the great thing about the brain is that it's always making up a story. It's always making up a narrative. And I think that's probably how we evolved. And I mean, that's what some scientists say is that Mm we were able to evolve because we had story, because we had language and we had a way to share our associations mentally. Mm -hmm. Um, so not to go on that whole tangent, but right. <laughs> getting into kind of, we talked about rites of passage and your own um, kind of journey off on the off the beaten path. And, and I guess I'll just say it part of my journey also, not I'm not going to get into my biography, but also started with the disillusionment and confusion and even going to psychology school and learning counseling, that's a whole vast spectrum of a world. Mm-hmm. And there are ways in which counseling can be towing the cultural line and uh, trying to indoctrinate people into a unhealthy existence and unhealthy materialistic surface culture and say, you know, just have to cope with it. Just cope with it. You're thinking wrong. You're thinking wrong Mm -hmm. instead of listening to the depth. And so then my own, I guess, further descent was letting go of my fear of actually reading more than a few quotes from Jung and actually mm-hmm. reading Jung and actually uh, working with a depth psychologist and uh, making James Hillman confuse me all day and reading Hollis, who's a bit more, James Hollis is a bit easier to read and more concise, but yeah. also being like, okay, I'm in this process. I'm part of this process. And what is this process doing to me? It's not really clear. It's not clear cut as it was, okay, learned graduate school, then you learn these techniques, then you see patients. It's not clear-cut anymore. Now, you know, these patients, usually the people know what to do anyway. Mm-hmm. They, know, they know what's going on, but they don't have permission or they don't feel like they can. Yeah. So that was a psychology segue. So back to you in terms of, I, I would love to know more about some of the things you've learned personally and also from these great teachers um, and some things that you found that are interesting for you right now? Yeah. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's a hard one to bite on really. Um, <laughs> because one of the things that I'm, I'm learning is that transformation is slow and it's very subtle. And sometimes you can have like a breakthrough and a breakdown, or mm-hmm. maybe that's the same thing. Um, but then to, to collect up those pieces in some s- sort of, to integrate the, that kind of, um, breakdown or breakthrough is is also part of the slow work work of transformation. So sometimes I ask myself what have I really learned? You know, where where am I now? What what truly have I experienced? Um because I think there's a kind of cycle and this is a super simple way of thinking about it, but I come from a world where um a religious world where beliefs were front and center. And what you need to do is have the right beliefs. You have to believe mm-hmm. this about God. You have to believe this about Jesus. And basically, if you get the beliefs right, you're okay in the afterlife, first of all. But you're just okay in general. And as if God is is a is a 
a person who peers into your belief systems. And, um, but, and it, but I think growing up period is coming to the very limits of that belief system. Like, all right, whether I really held those beliefs or not be, becomes kind of irrelevant. It's like you realize, oh, whatever this container is, it's only brought me so far. And I think maybe the traditional word for that transition point is something like faith. That's where faith begins. And I mean it only in the sense of I'm going to venture into the unknown here. Um, and there maybe are some trusted guides or guide-like images or ideas that say, keep going into the unknown. Um, that was true of the voices that I bumped into. Um, and then it's almost like the, the, that creates a kind of possibility, this faith like dimension of the unknown creates a possibility for um, some kind of experience. And then maybe the cycle starts over again. All right, so I'm having an actual experience of my life that's now re- reshaping my beliefs. That was kind of a long, long way of saying this is something I've been thinking about. And it's actually hard to say what, how, what have I, how have I changed my mind? And I think um, maybe, maybe it's worth saying that for me, um, I think when I first, when my world first started unraveling, I was looking for a system, a, a philosophy, a teacher to put it back together again. And maybe it was Buddhism, or maybe it's Ju- uh, Judaism, or maybe it's um, Bill Plotkin's map of the you know psyche, or maybe it's Jung. Although <laughs> there's too much there to <laughs> right. you know, it's not concise enough. You no. know, no one can understand it. Uh, but maybe someone will will put the world back together again oh. in an in an organized fashion. But that's not what happened. I think so. Maybe my experience is that in a way I'm a I'm learning that I'm a mystery to myself. <laughs> and every time I collect up more of the deep self, I'm only integrating little bits and pieces instead of like I found the thing, you know, um, or now I can make full sense of my history and my experience and my motivations. And no, I, I, I there's an, a, a subtle invitation to integrate just a bit more. And maybe I'm learning, if I can learn to treat myself as a kind of mystery, maybe I can treat other people that way too. Um, and I mean, you know, you sit down with people. Actually, Jung, you, Jung says this. He says, the person in front of you is not a statistic, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I I resist at times things like the Enneagram. I'm not totally against it, but the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or, or any of these, um, or the more simple ones like I'm a, a porpoise and you're a, right. an owl or something. Right. I'm, I'm not saying there's zero truth to these, but I'm saying it's too convenient. It's too convenient. Um, maybe it works on a, in a kind of symbolic or metaphoric way, but it's, it's too convenient that you are a mystery to yourself. <laughs> And the person in front of me is not a number. They're not a four. They're not a one. They're not a nine, you know. And um, I guess that's the, to me, that's something that I'm, that I'm coming to believe, I guess, that I didn't at one time maybe think. Yeah, and I was, I was just thinking, I was just reflecting on that. There's a lot there. Um, so feel free to interrupt at any point because I'm just going to try to Same. jump on a few of those. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the, 
what I'm hearing reminds me a little bit of the growing up process, but also the process of being a child. I think when we're a child, according to psychological development, if we just go straight to the science of it, children need a box and a container that's mm-hmm. safe. And we need um, explanations of the world that make sense. And we need grand narratives or stories or fairy tales or myths to teach us important lessons. And we also learn it through doing. I mean, there's the other there's this, there's the other side of you know I guess parenting, the shadow side, which is that your child actually learns more from what you actually do and how you live than they ever will from you from them. You know, you reading them whatever important text you think is important, mm-hmm. or kind of disciplining them, or lecturing them. Uh, but and then it and then in the second, you know, as we everyone's second part of life, I think, starts at a different time. But where you're starting to see things, the old ways don't make sense anymore. The simple belief system of checking the boxes for orthodox beliefs or checking the boxes for being a good you know, citizen or whatever aren't working for what's going on underneath the deep river of like the soul, mm-hmm. I guess we could call it, or the psyche. Um, and so part of me thinks that part of that represents our growth. And I think culturally, what we talked about earlier, our culture resists that growth Mm -hmm. and wants to keep us with simple explanations. And well, that leads to another quote, but leads to, you know, kind of a consumer culture. Uh, I had a quote about that and I'll get to the second part. You can interrupt at any point, but the, um, this is a James Hollis quote, but he said, today, as we have seen, Fascism and communism are discredited, but are replaced by a paraphilic consumer culture driven by fantasy, desperately in search of distractions and escalating sensations, and a fundamentalist culture wherein the rigors of a private journey are shunned in favor of an ideology at the expense of paradoxes and complexities of truth, which favors one-sided resolutions, black and white values, and a privilege of one's own complexes as the norm for others, which is in his book, Why Good People Do Bad Things. Mm. Reminded me of that, and it's hard because, you know, just you talking about, you know, uh, growing up in an evangelical religion and, mm-hmm. um, and all of that, all of us, you know, that gives an opportunity for somebody who's not really listening to you to label you. That's right. And to say, that's, oh, you're a this. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then you left? Oh, now you're a this. Yeah. Now that's easy for me to dismiss what you're saying instead of really listening. Yeah. And I think we, and on the same side, people that are you know, trying to open up into more, we have, it's also a temptation to label others. Um, And so I hear what you're saying is I'm trying to just really see where people are uh, coming from and where am I coming from? I don't even know, but I love this Hillman quote when I'll, I'm almost done. Yeah, do it, (laughs) do it, let's hear it. But he said, anytime you're going to grow, you're going to lose something. Mm. You're losing what you're hanging on to to keep safe. You're losing habits that you're comfortable with. You're losing familiarity. And I, I actually think that's from one of his talks. That's not from his book, but he's, it's just, and so it's scary. I mean, just to even admit, for you to publicly admit, I was an evangelical pastor and now I'm not. Mm-hmm. And I'm not by choice and there was no scandal. I just decided to not do it. Yeah. You know, like I, I wasn't taking <laughs> everyone's me, money I, or whatever. There were times I wish there was a scandal, you <laughs> right. know, it's, because it's easier to make sense to yourself and to other people. Right. You know, like, well, well I, I don't get it. You know, you didn't sleep with someone, you know, that's the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is a loss, you know, and people are, people are afraid. I, partly because, 
I mean, there was a lot in what 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 you just said, and also in in go what, anywhere you want. Yeah. No, I but I was thinking about there's there we have identity politics right now, mm-hmm. and and the, on the right and the left, we have a kind of identity spirituality. If there's such a thing, I sort of just invented that, or maybe maybe other people have said I don't know, um, which is is seems to be totally motivated by group identity. I am the group that I'm in. And um, and again, true on the right and the left. I don't care how sort of progressive um, or in the opposite extreme. Fundamentalism is, is not the domain of the right. Fundamentalism is everywhere. And that's kind of what he's saying. And, um, and the group the group and group identity trumps the wild, unique individu- individuality of, of people. Um, maybe that's why on one, on one level, um, even though I don't feel like I fully understand what Jung is talking about, he's sort of, he's th- the simple way of saying what is Jung into, he's into individuation. <laughs> And which is different than just becoming an individual, I think. But individuation, this difficult, painful, um, exhilarating, and um, life-affirming, and also, in a way, process, is not the pull of the culture. Even though we sort of bow down at people have rights, but again, that's much more in the realm of, of, of um, what would you call it? egocentric concerns, my rights, my life. That's not individuation, I don't think, in, in, a, in, a, in any simple sense. Um, but anyway, my, my main point was, um, I think any kind of spiritual growth in, the, in a general sense, um, those strong categories that people are going to go to war for um, start to lessen. They start to you start to see them not as completely irrelevant. I mean, maybe it's a part of natural growing up, like you were talking about children. We do need categories. We do need some labels. We do need, I don't, I'm not against race, for example. Sure. You know, I mean, you can't tell a, a young white person or a young black kid that they're not that. No, they are that. This right. is part of how we come to know who we are. It's just not all that's there. And, that's the problem with this kind of identity, spirituality, identity politics. The the clinging nature of it just wants to keep things, I think, in those clearly defined categories of who trumps who, you know? Um, but anyway, my, uh, what was my point? My point was to expand is, is to, I think, to go closer toward the mystery of, of, human, of human individuality and the soul itself. Yeah. Yes, and... Oh, so much there. Uh, the I was going to just make one comment before I go into the individuation was I, I've been having these thoughts about how people's perceptions of the world are changing. Mm-hmm. And I think they're possibly changing through multiple factors, including the internet and the news and what you, information you consume on a daily basis is shaping you. And I, I have many theories that if people were having more conversations face to face that were from different quote unquote tribes or ideologies or political realms, we would find more in common than apart. Mm -hmm. But when we talk through filters and then we're listening through filters, the filters, we're talking through filters, the news, the, in the, the internet, different ways that are not direct communication. And then we're listening through ideological filters that have said, if somebody says this, that's over the line, they're definitely a this 
and that means that you can't trust them. And in fact, they actually may be evil. They actually may need to be taken out. Mm-hmm. Like that's where it goes. It does. And I, and I feel that, that, that we're in sort of a postmodern, post-truth culture. And so then that brings up more fear because there's information everywhere. And no one knows who to trust. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some disillusionment. Remember, I, I don't remember if you remember this. I can't remember. Some famous CBS journalist made a confession. During the Iraq war, I sort of made up part of a story. And oh, yeah. I apologized. And, and everyone, like... I, I remember me going, well, isn't that what everybody's doing on the news these days? Yeah. And like every magazine's like, you don't really know if it's news or journalism or some sort of advertising. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, apologizing and nearly crying. And and then all of the people from his generation, I remember talking to some older folks who had grown up, I can't remember his name, but they were like, this is, I can't believe it. Not him. Mm-hmm. Now we don't know who to believe. So then more fear, yeah. more fear stokes the need to identify with the group because here I am now I'm in the wilderness again. I need a group. I don't feel I'm afraid to embrace my individual story. That's Mm -hmm. too scary. Um, Let's, let's stick with some easy stuff Mm -hmm. that'll quell my fear momentarily, Mm -hmm. but it just boxes you in. So that leads right to what you were talking about is the mystery of the self opening up to soul. uh, Breaking down of the ego is necessary for that to occur um, and acceptance of the shadow. I've just got to throw that in before we maybe dive in deeper. Uh, I love this Jung quote from Modern Man in Search of Soul of a Soul. He says, "How can I be substantial if I do not cast a shadow? Mm-hmm. I must have a dark side also if I am to be whole." And I think that's another thing I'm seeing in culture lately. People are, I mean, and, and on a good on the positive side, or I don't know, whatever. On one side, there is an opening up of authenticity and realness and people talking about wanting to have more authentic conversations. What's it like to be a parent? What's it like to be in that religion? What is it like to be a paleo? What is mm-hmm. it? And everyone's telling about their truth about that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side, I'm seeing when people make mistakes, they you're done. Mm-hmm. You're canceled. You're yeah. crucified. There's no redemption path. Scapegoat, scapegoat mechanism. And, and yeah. it's all projection. It uh, we've all done, maybe not you know, things on the news, but we've all done bad things. Mm-hmm. And, and we all, that part of, part of growing into your soul and breaking down is accepting um, that I have a, a, a large chasm of opposites within me, mm-hmm. capacity to do things we could label as positive and things we could label as negative. But Yo, for sure. Wherever. I mean, this is it. <laughs> this is, uh, uh, this is what our, uh, uh, culturally, I mean, culture on a thin level is just completely unwilling to do. It's so much easier and it pays the bills, meaning advertising pays mm-hmm. the bills to, you know, have CNN and Fox news and they just go back and forth there. The enemy is over there and Trump is the problem or mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton is the pro- problem or whatever the, the polls are. And, and uh, one of the things that Bill Plotkin says, which I think is funny, he says, one clue that you're getting close to the shadow is you hear things like, well, the one thing I know about myself is, mm, uh, mm-hmm. so, so an example would be the, the one thing I know about myself is that I'm not like Donald Trump. Right. That's the one thing I know. Then you're, you're probably getting close. <laughs> you're getting close to the thing that you're unwilling to, to eat, meaning mm-hmm. the shadow, you know, unwilling to take even a single bite of the shadow. Um, or the one thing I know about myself is that I'm not... Uh, the one thing I know about myself is I could never be. Mm-hmm. Those are just, I'm not saying you've discovered the shadow. I'm just saying those are little hints that you're getting close to it. Um, and in a sad way, um, oh, but before I say something about that, I was thinking about um, 
the big stories. Like, you're right, kids need stories and culture needs stories. And we live in a world where we're not sure what they are anymore. We're sort of in the, in, at the tail end of the Christian, of Christendom. And I don't know what's coming next, and I'm not even predicting that it's going to die. I'm just saying, but something about it has run its course, and it's clearly not um, ordering culture in any way. Um, so it's hard to know what story I'm in. So when I get to the middle of my life and I wake in a dark wood, um, instead of seeing that um, as part of a larger pattern, which is what the great stories do for us, they say something like, you're okay enough. You're part of the big story. We don't have anything like that. Mm. So the anxiety is, it goes through the roof. We don't have elders that are saying, actually, it's time for you to go out on a vision fast. You know, it's time for you to leave the village and not eat. You know, it's time for you to go on a a wander because you don't know who you are. People are Mm -hmm. just left to their own devices and maybe they have a therapist or a counselor and that's fine. But it's sort of like, um, without these larger narratives, in a sense, to to help create a frame, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to, to try to name what kind of story we're in. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm talking out of two sides of my mouth at times, which is something like individuation is the, the, the great call here, which is a descent to soul, something like that. And down there, you discover something of your own wild, unique essence that you can bring forth in the world. Um, but that's... But that does uh, align with the big stories, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. The, the big stories of great change and transformation have something like this in it. Um, like I was thinking about Abraham. There's there the three tiers f- at the very beginning of the Abraham story. So God apparently shows up and says to Abraham, leave your country. All right, so that's, a, that's an identity. Uh, leave your people. So that's an, another layer of, of identity, and then leave your father. And, now, and, and that's just to start the journey. But what we're basically saying is don't ever leave. Right. Like religion is saying don't ever leave. We've already figured it out. Abraham kind of did that for us, or Jesus did that for us, we, we, and we know who we are. So people never get close to the journey, you know? Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like I'm personally wrestling with how much do we need the old narratives um, the, the deep narratives, the old myths and stories on a symbolic and metaphoric level, how much do we still need those? And I think the answer to that is, I think we do, to help frame this wild, unique process of, you know, sort of our own individuation and discovery. So does that, that make sense as a question? It, that's uniting. Well, yeah, that's uniting the opposites mm. because it depends. When you said on the symbolic level, you're talking about how are we reading these stories? Mm-hmm. How are are we reading them as an informative trans uh, an informative text that can spark something within us for us to learn and also transform and also have a spiritual experience, mm-hmm. or are they a factual textbook of box checking that we're reading somebody else's interpretation and not letting it work on us? That's right. And so kids need that. They need stories. I mean, if you look at the Grimm's fairy tales, Maurice Louis von Franz, I'm butchering her name, wrote a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of stuff about uh, the fairy tales. And Joseph Campbell talked about all the creation stories and all the, the, um, 
different stories of uh, that are mirrored in the Bible or mirrored in other cultures and other religions all over the world that are fully documented in piles of text. Mm-hmm. And so we need some sort of story. Humans thrive off stories. We need a story. Um, and I think we're, it's, it's difficult to have that story, but then it's, again, how are we reading it? And, and how, how are we utilizing it? Which, again, gets into the belief versus action. Yeah. You know, you go to church and you hear, I believe this, I believe that, I believe this. And then, you know, that's where our younger self maybe gets disillusioned. Well, wait a minute. I met you outside of church and I didn't feel that you believed what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Like that, yeah. that sort of younger self. So now... I, I'm getting, I don't want to get totally into those weeds, okay. but <laughs> the, uh, the, the idea of having a frame, but also then the story, individuation part is leaving the frame. I, and I, f- I feel like perhaps maybe needing the frame is the beginning part of life. Mm-hmm. And, and then where you're at right now and where I've been kind of dipping my toes into is um, what if there is no frame and you just you, the frame is in you. You've already been installed with that information, but now every day is opening up to not knowing and unknowing and mm-hmm. seeing what's there. I don't know if that made any sense. Yeah. Um, well, maybe it's something like this. Like if you come back to the Abraham story, so in order to go on the great adventure, he has to leave his culture of identity, including his own father. That's no small task, and as you probably know, as a as therapist. Some people have never left home. They're st- they 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 may live in a different state from their parents, and they've never left home. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, I- Abraham's story—it's not even an important question—is was Abraham even a real person? You know, or or do I need to believe that he literally walked from Ur to Canaan? He may or may not have. It's <laughs> my archaeology professor used to always say, "Well, I don't know. I wasn't there." You know, that was always his <laughs> answer to things. Um, so the beliefs about the historicity of that are, are kind of, it's like the wrong rabbit trail to, to go down. And, and also, it's not a direct application. It's, like, it's not like, um, oh, I see, I must follow exactly what Abraham did. Or even to make it a little more controversial, I'm supposed to follow what Jesus did if you're a Christian. Well, How? You know, I mean, that, that's living someone else's life. The, the invitation is almost something like the pattern is there to create a kind of container of which emerges out of the middle your own wild and unique way of embodying the pattern that's there. So how might you embody the pattern of leaving home would be the question. Or how mm. might you embody the pattern of the Christ figure, meaning, and you could, there's be a lot to say about what exactly is the Christ figure, but it's not... I should do things the way they, they did it. Like, the, it's the wrong question. Remember those bracelets, what would Jesus do, you mm-hmm. know? Maybe it's a good starting question because it maybe gets you, you thinking. But the right question is, what, what am I called to do? And, and, and on the pattern level is something about my own waking up and suffering, the combination of those things, a little like uh, the great patterns, you know? A little like the great archetypal patterns, Anyway, does that... Yes, actually, that reminds me of The Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell. Yeah. And I think maybe we'll get into some of the stuff you've been doing recently, after maybe towards the next part, but The Hero's Journey is six parts or four parts, it depends who's reading it, but from my memory, here we go, is um, you hear the call, 
there's something that you feel you're meant to do, maybe on a soul level or a pattern level. Uh, you leave home, you face trials and obstacles, and you want to go home. You want to give up. You want to return to mom. Uh, you want to return to the motherland, whatever it is, and just say, screw this. Let me just fit in. Mm-hmm. I want to just fit in. I'm sick of this. This is this is insane. Uh, and then through suffering, through, um, I think Hillman says something like, the soul is open through our wounds. Mm. Um, through some terrible, usually, descent, either psychological, spiritual, or physical, or maybe it's conquering, you know, in the old days, the dragon or whatever. Maybe the dragon's in us, mm-hmm. and or the dragon is that we demonize other people, then we uh, receive the gift or the tool, um, and we now, whatever that gift or tool is, uh, we can now wield that, and we, we're learning to wield it, I suppose. We're not totally competent yet. And then this is the four-part path. Eventually, um, we, we learn that we can't use our, our tool or our gift for only selfish reasons. So we've got to return home. Uh, to, in a way, um, not necessarily to our homeland, but in a way that is uh, sharing our gift and sharing what we've learned and through our journey with younger people or other people that are in need. Um, and that, the hero's journey is what Joseph Campbell kind of distilled out of reading so many uh, mythic tales about great spiritual heroes, great mythic figures, mm-hmm. and he sort of came up with the four part. Now, it's way more complex if you read his books. I yeah. just summarize. I think it's actually That's six or eight summary. parts. That's a great summary. Nice job. But that was, well, that was, yeah. yeah, so I, I I feel like even that is a story. I remember using that in therapy with mm-hmm. a young person and how they felt like they were being labeled and because they had left the conformity of their family mm-hmm. and their family had very strict rules and they were all run, unwritten. Mm-hmm. But it was you, he knew what the rules were because if he didn't follow them, there was massive shame mm-hmm. over things that I was bewildered by, really. Like he didn't. I won't get into detail for HIPAA reasons. But he, you know, he left and the, it, was, um, it was almost like being excommunicated, mm-hmm. I suppose. And he was a very successful person in terms of our culture. Um, and then eventually, I don't remember the whole story because he left therapy, but eventually, but he did receive some sort of gift. He had a fantastic talent and became successful in a completely different realm than it was expected of him by his family and by his culture of origin. And last I remember, last I heard, he was attempting to return to community in some way. Um, I don't think it was around his family because they couldn't hear him, sort of like Francis of Assisi's father yeah. totally disowns him. I think that's kind of where he was at at that point. Yeah. Um, but uh, he, and I remember that's when I brought it up because I had been reading Campbell and I used that four-part thing and he felt so much better knowing that other people and other cultures and the history, like this is actually a pattern. Like you're not just an outcast. You're not just, um, I don't know, whatever he was labeling himself as or being labeled as by others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know. I, I love, I, I don't know. I think of that. I like to put myself in that. It, mm-hmm. It's an interesting container with which we can help make sense of traumatic things, but that's not totally to the descent part, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's nice because in a simple way, it says there's a name to all this. Um, and you can at any point be in a sort of state of arrested development. You could, be on the, you could be in the descent and never return. 
Or you could have a gift and use it for selfish reasons. Or or you could refuse the call. That's one of the. Oh sure. You know they're Stay all. Home. And, and but to say that the, that the aim ultimately is to live in service to to offer the gift of who you are to the world um, is noble. And I think that's what I mean in a really simple way. That story is not being told, told culturally. Um, I mean, think about even the, 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 the office of the president. I imagine 100 years ago, I'm making this up, there was still enough nobility that what was the purpose of it? To serve the greatest good to the greatest number of people. And now politics has become just an ideological power grab. And uh, uh, they talk about public service, but we could probably count on one hand the number of people who are in politics that we would say that person really seems like they're giving their gift to the world to do the greatest number, the greatest amount of good. We say, no, that we can't, can't find it anywhere. It's not a story that, that is being told. And I think that's part of maybe a larger cultural disillusionment. Like we look around and say, nobody, hardly anybody is living, um, in a sacrificially, profound way. And, um, and yet we have this like deep kind of pattern in the psyche that says that that's the aim. Um, and so like this, you know, this person in, in, in therapy that you, you brought up to find something of that is to find meaning. It's to find the meaning of, of one's own life. Um, yeah, so I don't know, I don't know where I would go from there other than that's partly why I'm saying we still need the stories. We need the stories for the patterns that they reveal. And that's not the only one, the hero's journey. In fact, maybe it's a little, it's a little overused at present. We have actually like a lot of quote heroes, you know, maybe that's probably not the best word anymore. You also have the life death life cycle of things. Like I was thinking about women who run with the wolves, that book, that's a very different, the stories in there are mythically different patterns. There are some hero components to it, but much more about the life death life cycle of all things. Um, maybe that's more of a, the feminine counterpart to the the hero that goes out and well, that's does a good something, point that's a very you know? masculine uh story if it you is. kind of break it down yeah it is a very masculine story um but anyway we and we, but we need these kind of deeper streams and um and disney <laughs> the reason why disney is a multi-billion dollar company is because they're playing with these myths oh yeah you know they're playing with the archetypes and probably intentionally i don't know i don't know anyone that works there but that's why they work because it's waking up the patterns that are in us i think yeah well speaking of archetypes um lately you had told me about the work of dr bill plotkin and i started reading his book Soulcraft, which i'm very much enjoying right now and i was just kind of curious about what was your own experience like with sort of doing some of that work or some deep soul searching mm-hmm. work with the archetypes yeah it's a, a it's a good question um i sort of told you that i he came into my field of vision through richard Rohr, and and i started reading some of his books but what was waking up was was in me was a desire to go on some of these programs like I had I wanted to someday do a vision fast, and I, I liked the way he talked about it because it didn't seem like cultural appropriation. It seemed like a contemporary form of something very ancient. Um, that was kind of the pull, but I was also really terrified of it. Like, um, 
I, terrified in an existential way and, and also a physical way, like what would happen to me. So I sort of crept into some of their programs there. I, I started with a, a program called Wild Mind, which maybe is um, uh, was a way, it's sort of a map to, uh, of archetypes of wholeness and um, the subpersonalities of these uh, of the map based on the uh, four cardinal directions. And first of all, it was pretty concrete. I could go into details if you want, but I don't need to. Um, it worked for me like I could understand it. But the amazing thing about the program is we'd be talking about the North, for example, and uh, the archetype is the nurturing generative adult. And we would engage in practices, be sent out onto the land. Out, and this was in um, high in the mountains of New Mexico. And I just felt like relieved and also a little bit scared at the same time. I grew up in the woods in in Virginia, uh, where I was born, and I always really loved being outside. And I kind of had um, maybe lost touch with this more the, the more natural Kent, <laughs> whatever <laughs> that is. And and there was something about the way the the practices and ceremonies and invitations that really just rung my bell. I was like, yes, I want to be outside. And um, a lot of the practices are are designed in such a way to enhance the conversation between the unconscious or the soul, the psyche, and the natural world. Um, the natural world as a mirror um, to one's own uh, depths. And that really, I think, um, resonated with me and challenged me at the same time. Um, and I remember on that first program, they said, uh, well, we want to do some dream work in the morning. And, and I thought to myself, well, I don't really have dreams, you know, or if I do, I don't really remember them. Or I can remember a couple from childhood, but um, a lot different than my, my wife, who was always, you know, saying, hey, I had this dream. Um, and, and so I just followed their basic instructions, like, okay, well, I'll take a notebook out. And if I remember some, I'll write them down. So I came to breakfast in the morning and we sat down at a, at a table and they said, who had any dreams? And I, nobody said anything. And I was like, well, I guess I did. And, um, they said, okay, why don't you begin to share your dream? And they, there's some instructions for how to do that. And I tried to choose one that I thought was the least potent. You know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I didn't know because I'd never done any dream work, but I was like, this one seems mild, you know, this one seems weird and probably doesn't mean anything is kind of maybe what my ego or was saying. Right. <laughs> and, and as soon as I got into it, you know, within a matter of, uh, of just a few minutes, I found myself sort of re-experiencing the dream in a profound way. And I'm crying at breakfast and, um... The, the the dream in a way through the course of the next few days just really shook the really shook me to my own shook me to the core like wait a minute who the hell am i what is this thing what what is the image what are these um emotions feelings and images that i seem to know nothing about that also seem to have a kind of potency and edge to them in in, in inviting me into something and, um, and that in a way it changed my life because I realized, first of all, I don't know what I'm talking about, which is a great, uh, probably once a year we need a good, right. <laughs> once a week might be better, but at least once a year we need to be reminded, wait, I don't know what I'm talking about. And all my theology and spirituality, you know, I, I don't know anything. 
And, and I guess for some people that can be completely demoralizing for me, it was like, all right, I want to keep going on this journey. And so it changed my life in that sense. And, um, just a single dream. And I still carry some of the, the images with, with that dream. I think now that I know a little bit about dream work and only a little bit, I suppose there are big dreams and small dreams. Um, if, if I could guess, uh, maybe they're all big, but this one strikes me as one of the big ones that will, I'll, I'll continue to wrestle with, um, the rest of my life. So anyway, that, that sort of shifted, um, my way of being in the world and, then I was like, all right, I'm going to do more of these. There's something about the relationship between soul and nature that I resonate with. Um, and initially, um, I was, or I should say simultaneously with this first program, was when I, I started having those rumblings of, what am I doing with my life? I can't believe I'm a pastor. Well, how did I ever end up doing this? I had a couple of, I, read, I wrote about it in Bitten by a Camel, but I had kind of an out-of-body experience when I was teaching one time. I was walking around on the stage, and I could see myself talking um, from above in a way, and my feeling was I don't know what that guy is talking about. Maybe it was just an encounter with this persona or something that I, but it was definitely, it scared me. Like, it was like, whoa, um, what's going on? So I, I'm mentioning that because the, this program um, coincided with these, these uh, the questions of what am I doing with my life and who am I and what is my purpose? And, and I began to have like kind of strange experiences like that that I couldn't easily make sense of. Um, and then I, then, then I joined at Animus. They had a year-long program. I was like, I'm going to do this year-long program. And um, two days before it started, I quit my job as a pastor. Oh, wow. And, and again, I, this was not like a plan of mine. It just all kind of like, it felt haphazard. Like I could create, I could tell a great story about it now. Sure. But then it just felt like uh, I'm done. Joseph Campbell had something to do with it. My wife was reminding me the other day. Um, I finished watching the Joseph Campbell videos, the Bill Moyers and oh, Joseph Campbell videos that. for the second time. Yes. And she said a few days after that, I, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm done being a mega church pastor. So that, that was in the mix too. Um, and, and, and I went into this program really um, open in a, in a way and really feeling the terror of not having a plan. Like I had, this was not an, uh, a plan B, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a plan B. I didn't have a strategy for even how to quit my job. You know, I have kids, I have a house, you know, I, I didn't even know how I was going to pay the bills. So I was feeling that. And at the same time, just on, on a maybe deeper, more existential sense, I don't know where I'm going and, and I want to keep going. <laughs> I want to keep going down. And that's the way it felt. Um, my dad died that same year during my year-long program, and that was just a continued push into this, um, uh, into the into the deep questions of what, what, who am I, and what am I doing here? Um, but eventually, when I emerged up out of the year-long, and it's not like it manufactures 
sort of a soul descent. Mm-hmm. And Animus is quite clear about this. They're not trying to manufacture anything. There's an application process. And I think they tend to accept people who, in a, in a program like the year-long, that already are in, a, in various stages of descent, have, mm-hmm. have broken the, in some ways, the, 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 conform, the strings of conformity. And I don't mean they're rebels. I just mean like they're trying to walk, they're trying to choose authenticity over social acceptance would be one way of putting it. And they're having a hard time finding their way. And they, they've, be, they've begun the descent, I suppose. Um, it's happening to them. So anyway, um, at the end of this program, there was something about it that I wanted to keep going. And um, I wasn't sure how. And it took me a while to decide. But eventually I applied to their um, apprenticeship program which is, in a way, I'm apprenticing to do this kind of work, nature-based guiding, yes. nature-based underworld guiding, we, we might call it. But it is a real apprenticeship in that it's a long, slow process. There's, and, and it's mostly through programs. There's not really a curriculum. And Animus has about 12 to 15 guides, so I'm learning from all these people. It's not just like Bill Plotkin is the guru and we all sit at his feet. It's not right. like that. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, a lot of it is trial by fire, you know? I mean, um, uh, meaning we are expected to be full participants in all these various programs, to have the work um, be done unto us before we ever get to the point of, how might I turn this around in some way? And so every time I go on a program, I'm always like, oh, God, what now? You know, <laughs> what? <laughs> What dream might I have or what sort of right. strange and numinous experience might happen or maybe nothing will happen and that will be, you know, because that often is the case too, you know. Um, so anyway, that that's kind of how I, I backed into this, this or fell into this kind of work. But I do think about it as a kind of calling. I, I My evangelical hang-ups resist words like that at times because... That's the way Christians talk about stuff, and God told me to do this, and I'm called. But it does feel like a calling in the deep, like a calling of the soul that to be in this kind of work, that um, the transition from the first half of life to the second half of life, and even discovering any elements of the deeper self is really hard and treacherous terrain, and, um, and, but people, and people need help in that respect, and... So I don't know, that was kind of a long uh, rambling of how I got into this kind of stuff. What are you hearing? Oh, I like all of it. I, I heard some things, and I kind of want to hear more all right. about uh, the when you had that dream. There just sounded like multiple initiations, and that's from the Jungian depth psychology language. It just sounded like you were being, you know, like initiation, I guess, is a calling. Like all of a sudden something comes from beneath, and the earth is beneath us. And we're part of nature. And that's something I struggle with in our culture a lot is just people talk about the earth and nature as if it's something separate or something out there or something disposable. And so just kind of recognizing we're part of nature, then this initiation came up. All of a sudden, you kind of, like when initiation happens, at first, I think sometimes people get excited. They're like, oh, good, more transformation and transcendence. And what happened all of a sudden, here, I quit my job. I entered some program that doesn't have a prescriptive outcome, mm-hmm. um, 
and I was thinking about soul work and the depth psychology is that they're into healing in whatever form that comes into from my from the Jungian stuff. I'm not sure about Plotkin, but and that's not necessarily symptom relief or mm-hmm. feeling like you might go through a depression or anxiety and yeah. you're trying to get to um I feel like, I don't know, an acceptance of self, an acceptance of mortality, an acceptance of where we live on a planet in a solar system, an acceptance of a greater cosmology. I don't know if, if Plotkin's going there, but that's what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. Reminding me a little bit of, like, it's nature-based. So um, learning from, so we, we talk about stories, but learning from the way trees grow mm-hmm. and the way the seasons pass in different areas of the world and learning from... Uh, weather transitions and I don't know rocks that have been there for you know we're That's obviously right. reflecting our thoughts onto the rocks. Um, yeah, I, I, I like I like all of it because it's it's another way it's a tool but it's another way I think people are really looking for something deeper and greater. Mm-hmm. I, I think in the second part of life, especially if we just keep reading the same story over and over and over, it feels rote and it feels. Well, I guess this is all there is, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to sink into my habits. Yeah. Um, and I think that people don't really want to do that, but I feel like sometimes people don't think there's another option. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, it's interesting you're talking about your descent and going into this and what's going on and what am I going to be challenged with now? Mm-hmm. People, <laughs> I can hear people going, why would I ever want to do this? I know. <laughs> why, would I, why would I ever <laughs> want to expose myself to more challenges? And I... I don't know why you do it, but I know I've been dabbling. I haven't gone full into his program or anything like that, but I've been doing some nature-based stuff as well, just in very, like, what do you call that? Small doses, Mm -hmm. I suppose, you know, for sessions and different things uh, in addition. And I've been learning just so much about my own inner self, even from, like, a therapy lens, too, just Mm -hmm. going, oh, I... I'm doing this action. I may believe all these great things like we talked about earlier, and I might have all these great therapeutic answers for certain symptoms, but what what am I on an underneath level doing? And I think the nature-based stuff is helping me sort of encounter a different part of myself that is causing actual, like you can ask my wife, actual change, yeah. like versus just like, you know, micro changes. Like there, you, as you said, the work is small, is slow and grueling. But even though it's slow and you may not, and it may be subtle, I felt doing some a, a small dose of what you've been doing. I felt just amazing. I felt more united with myself, but also the world, also other people, also mm-hmm. accepting of people that who's normally I would have been reactive to their belief system mm-hmm. and reactive to their behavior. And I found myself, I don't know trying to be at peace with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I'm reflecting my own my own thing, and it reminded me, the last thing I'll say, because I want to hear more about you and what mm-hmm. you're doing and some of these things and how people can get involved. Um, it reminded me of, I went and saw Matthew Fox. I don't know if you know who mm-hmm. he is, but he was talking at the Jung Institute in Chicago in the fall, and he was just really interesting guy. But one of the things that I what struck me was that he was helping a lot of former Catholics get involved in something called the Cosmic Mass. Mm. And the Cosmic Mass is essentially a ceremony for anyone from any spiritual or non-spiritual tradition to show up. And I don't know, he goes through all these stages, I don't Mm -hmm. know exactly, but sort of like recognizing our humanity, recognizing our grief, Mm -hmm. recognizing um, 
our hopes and dreams, but also recognizing our death and demise and recognizing that we're part of a larger cosmology. Mm. And he showed us some, I think he showed us some photographs and some videos and also just talking about it and how people from all faiths and also a ton of atheists that came to the one in Toronto were just crying and just sort of joining hands, people from all backgrounds. Um, to, and, and in his words, he's trying to invent a new story. Like mm. if we're part of a larger cosmology, is that a new story we can adopt? That's kind of one of his mm-hmm. things, which is not, I don't think what Plotkin's doing, but... No, not just, necessarily, right. although sometimes Plotkin will reference other people who are doing that kind of stuff, like Thomas Berry. Oh, okay. Right. Thomas Berry, I think, uh, Brian Swim, these are kind of the new <laughs> new cosmologists in a way. Um but I love what you're saying. I mean, I think spirituality in general, if it doesn't find its way back to a deeper relationship with the earth, then we're in real trouble. I mean, we're, and if, if, if people aren't, aren't rediscovering their kinship with, with the world, then we continue to, to destroy what we're made of. You know, like you're right, we are our nature. We don't realize everything that we're doing to the earth, we're doing to ourselves, or we're barely beginning to to realize that. So spirituality has to be a kind of return to this reciprocal, cooperative dance. Um, but one of the things I think that's surprising about nature-based work is that some people, if I, if I describe kind of what I do and may, maybe take people out on retreats, they sort of imagine that they're going to go out there and they're going to be one with nature. Oh, right. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, or they're going to pick wild berries and just return to like the indigenous cave woman or caveman. That's not what really happens at all. Um, sometimes you can experience moments of what I would, I guess, call transcendence or union, or you, you realize that this decomposing stump is somehow mystically also what I am. (laughs) And I will return to the earth and am already returning to the earth in the very same way. Um, But that's maybe a flash, a taste that you might get from time to time. But nature, um, it pushes against us also. That's what's surprising about it. Like, um, there's a practice we sometimes do at Animus called befriending the dark. And I won't go through all the steps, but we're, we basically are encouraging people to go out at night to seek out a place in which they can feel some terror. And if, and if it's not terrifying enough to go further. Now, you need people who are psychologically well enough to... to and also... Um, you know, you can't force this kind of stuff on, on anyone. But, but what I mean is that when you're out there, um, on the one hand, you have elements of your own psyche that are attacking you. You know, your nature is a mirror like that. And, um, the tree is the bear and the bear is, you know, uh, part of this archetypal thing that you're deeply afraid of, you know, and, and it's part of your own shadow. And so, but, but also it's also terrifying to be outside. Nature just by itself, isn't exactly our friend, you know? Um, And that's why I love nature-based work, because you don't, you can send people out on, uh, to do ceremonies and practices, and you, I can never predict what, there are patterns, but I can never predict what's going to happen. It could be that they begin a conversation with a tree that opens up 
something deep about who they are. They, they, they could also just be really cold, you know, and it right. could rain and they could be worried about their own survival. And that's the thing that happens, you know, it's, uh, so it's, um, I guess in a simple sense, you're handing over a lot of the work to nature itself and you become mm-hmm. a kind of, of process guide to help people talk more deeply about their experiences. You can't manufacture anything. If you send someone on a vision fast, all you can say is, I'll see you in four days, don't eat. That's all you can say. And what happens out there, you can't predict, you don't know, you don't, there, again, there are patterns because we're human beings. Um, and the great myths seem to, to seem to say these are the sorts of things that will happen, but you don't know. And the wild individual content is going to just come however it's going to come. And then in a way, you're responsible for helping people integrate, process, and work through what comes out in this surprising exchange between the soul and nature. And I guess, I guess a lot of the programs are designed like that. Um, how do we... In, it, encourage and enhance conversation, the, the great conversation between nature and the human soul. Um, if that, if that makes some sense. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, yeah, I definitely at the end, I want to make sure we put Plotkin's work and the Animus Institute in the notes. Okay. So more people can be getting into this and, and it just so much there, but a couple of things that just struck me from the therapy angle, um, were just sort of, from the psychological world that I'm in is that I found that people seem to get more out of what I would call experiential therapy than just a belief substitution and, and, or a sort some sort of mechanism you memorize. So, mm-hmm. um, I do EMDR therapy, which is about getting into the experience of the felt sense of the emotions and processing that, but it's much more controlled. Mm -hmm. And I hear what's going on in the nature-based is you are letting go of a lot of control. Mm -hmm. Not total control, because you have a sleeping bag (laughs) and maybe some... You know, emergency rations or yeah. some, some something to eat if you actually pass out or whatever from not eating, and and you have some guides and some structure. So, but it is nature is scary and it does push against us. It can bring up all sorts of feelings and thoughts because you're alone with your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very much the opposite of a self development seminar that brings you <laughs> brings you through three days. No kidding. You know of yeah. like. Well, the first day we're going to do mm-hmm. this, and the second day we're going to do this, and the third day, then you'll know, and wait, mm-hmm. come back next year, and also maybe sell this MLM thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, you know, it's not, it's, if a person's going to do it, they've got to understand what you learn or don't learn could be transformative, mm-hmm. um, but it, you're taking a risk because it's not packaged in a neat little bow and... It remind the only thing I can think of on the way to what you're talking about is sometimes um, I've had some friends I haven't done one yet I but uh, go on silent retreats mm-hmm. um, where you you know are quiet for three days among other people which mm-hmm. is interesting and you can eat some food and maybe there'll be a speaker um, for like an hour a day and you go walk in nature and do like meditative walking and things and and usually that has the great effect of reducing stress and maybe learning a few things about what your thought content's about and, and going through some exercises. But what I hear you doing is I think I, I'm very excited about this because it's like, all right, let's 
let's just get out there. This is way more than a controlled vegan silent retreat in our little hut, you know, in our comfortable blankets. And we're going out into nature. And I mean, that's how, I don't know. I think people, I think it was easier to learn from nature when we used to live more in it. Now it's very controlled. My street has trees planted by the city Mm -hmm. uh, right there on the boulevard and they're nicely spaced and I can have a certain amount of foliage around here, but this is a house in a neighborhood and there eventually, if I put up too many bushes, I think someone might complain. So, I mean, this is a controlled environment and some deer sometimes get up here and, you know, Mm -hmm. but that's not too scary. You're going out there. We're letting go of control. And I think letting go of control in therapy helps us process unprocessed things and emotions. So I can only imagine letting go of control of safety mm-hmm. and letting go of control of what I'm supposed to learn and letting go of control of who I think I am and letting go of control and just having a few parameters to what one might learn. It can be completely seismic in its shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you have to, is, but yeah, go ahead. It is very much about uh, letting go of enough control. I mean, the, the, the ego never totally goes away. I remember even at the very end of my four-day vision fast in my head, all of a sudden I realized I was working on my CV, my resume, for a long time. You know, here I am at the end of, you'd think I'd be in some mystical union with nature and, you know, no, I'm working on my CV. You know, I'm just, it's just turning over, well, maybe I could, you know, I need to do this, this, and this, and maybe I could apply for this. You know, I'm like already preparing to exit, you know, or Mm -hmm. I I guess I'm exiting already mentally. Um, But, uh yeah, you're right. Being being in wild or semi-wild places, it's humbling. It's always humbling. And um and we need more of that. And I think that the soul longs for that kind of um humiliation might even be the right word that you're not in control of your life. You're you're not even in control of uh you you had even you you didn't even have any say in coming into the this strange world in the first place. So here I am in the earth community, um, in these wild places, in these mysterious and wild places. How do we get here? And you realize there how how little control you really have. And there's no there's very the invitation to go deeper is it's like it's it creates kind of a thin place, you know, a, a thin place between who I think I I or who I thought I was in the world and what's beneath that. And same with the world, what I thought the world was and and what's behind that, you know? And those thin places are what are can are often experienced in in wild and semi-wild places. Same with probably a silent retreat. I am the one who walks around and says things. Well, when you're not Mm -hmm. walking around saying things, the world becomes more thin. And and all these other ways of being in the world, and even our own senses, start having a say. And our imagination starts having a say, and our hearing starts having a say. And... and, um, And... being in communion with someone without speech, it's like a whole foreign way of being in the world. And and again, that's another thin place. And the thin places are, are the uh, perhaps the places where transformation. Um, it's the edge of, of of some potential transformation. So, uh, yeah. Um, and I think, first of all, I I can easily become the kind of person that one of my professors in graduate school. 
used to say, um, we, what was the line? Uh, we all tend to universalize what life has done to us. So, which is a nice way of saying like, well, my example would be, hey, I'm into nature-based stuff. Everyone should be, you know, or everybody needs to go on a vision fast or every, I don't have that. The, the more rational side of me says, no, that's, it's not for everyone. Nature is for everyone because we are nature. Um, but there are a lot more um, simple practices and um, sort of 101 type things to help awaken the conversation between nature and, and the human soul rather than a vision fast, you know, uh, going on a walk, um, going to a park and allowing yourself to be drawn to a place. Well, what does that mean? Well, go and do it. Go and say, and just walk around, open up to your, your five senses and follow your curiosity. And, and if suddenly a place kind of intrigues you, a spot out on the land, go and spend time there. These are, go and engage in a kind of living conversation. Um, Talk to birds. I mean, St. Francis did it, you know. What, talk, open your mouth to and have a, a dialogue with a tree. This is not, there's no trick involved. There's no, it's not magic. Um, it just re-engages or, or, or maybe on one sense it confuses our ego. And it says, that the ego sort of says, I don't know what this is, but if you can get beyond that, then you find yourself having an, ex- an exchange um, uh, uh, I was about to bring up something about dancing because one time I, I was having a, a, I was working with a guide basically and, and she said something like, um, why don't you go out and find a place on, on the land that you're attracted to and, and dance or move the way that you're feeling? And I went and tried it, and it's like, what is ha- what what is happening? As if as if part of me knows what to do, and part of me knows nothing about that, right. you know. And you're like, wait, what kind of world? So these are just simple ways of 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 engaging this ancient human conversation between who we who our deep selves are and the world that we find ourselves in. So, so and and I I love that you actually brought in the practical aspects for people that maybe not in a position to go do something like this. Um, but there's various levels from the basic going to a park to seeing a depth psychologist or uh, somebody who knows and engaging in those conversations to reading books, to journaling, to uh, outside, you know, mm-hmm. obviously things that would engage you with nature and the nature-based work to uh, obviously the extreme getting into it. But I, I, it reminded me a couple things just on a base level, it can help you because we're part of nature. I used to, when I lived in Chicago, I used to call it city fever. Mm-hmm. Every three or four weeks, I just felt like so much inundation with the stress of the city that I would take the train up to Evanston and like, or, or the go take the bus to the botanical gardens or, or go to the lake to mm-hmm. just get away from the noise. Um, and so that can be just helpful on a basic level, but to engage in the deep conversation, it, it takes a little bit more, it takes a practice, I guess, a little bit of a practice um, and I think when you start talking to a tree or going around and just experimenting with your body, like stretching in a park or dancing or um, just examining very, like, for instance, I don't remember, I don't know if this is one of your practices, but um, I've, I've called it like when you just sit somewhere and like when you were a kid and you just sort of examine the soil and examine the grass and then kind of look at the clouds and sort of like make up a story about the clouds. I don't know what you'd call that, but... Um, 
what this is, is this is a disorientation to our normal pattern. Yeah. Our normal autopilot pattern of whatever you're engaged in right now, you know, school, work, maybe you don't work, maybe, you know, whatever family situation, whatever it is, you're in, you're in a pattern mm-hmm. of some type. And maybe you break up the pattern by, you know, prototypical, if you can afford to go on a vacation, you break up the pattern or you go to a movie, um, that breaks up the pattern. But if you, if you allow yourself to engage with nature, it's basically free. And it's what I call, it's a disorientation to the pattern of your mind mm-hmm. so that you can listen. Yeah. It, in my, in psychological interpretation, you know, without going into the, the Jungian part is just, you're listening to what's going on inside of you mm-hmm. and, and you're lowering your defenses to who, to whatever narrative you think you're living out. And it can be simple, such as just so simple, like going on a walk and and not taking your headphones and mm-hmm. all of a sudden going, you know what? I just, my friend, they said something to me and it hurt my feelings and I need to go to them. So simple, relational yeah. or deeper, why am I working at this place? Mm-hmm. I don't like anything about it. Um, I... I've been lying to myself. I've been seeking security over authenticity. Mm-hmm. Why am I in this relationship? Or um, uh, why? What am I? What am I doing with my life? Which is scary. Mm-hmm. But also, if you don't do it, that I mean, go read the regrets of the dying. I mean, mm-hmm. like people. I don't know. If, I can't remember the five, but one of them is that they they wish they had sort of listened to their dream mm-hmm. of what they wanted to do, and that I think the dream is bringing your gift into the world. That's one way of yeah. having a dream um, and engaging with it. Not that that's the only way to engage it, but that's my little mm-hmm. interpretation of it. So these practices are, and they're also, I, I think, ancient practices yeah. also. So that it's uniting to something from the past. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, it's hard to, to trace the origin of any practice, you know, I mean, because religions tend to share material and practices that work. I mean, um, and the various forms of prayer. Uh, but I, I think on one level, we're describing a more contemplative um, w- way of bringing yourself to the world, you know, where a, a nice way of putting it is what you just said, you're breaking your ordinary patterns. And that's what practices were meant to do. That's what the disciplines were meant to do. I mean, the idea of a vision fast, Jesus did, you know, mm. in the Christian tradition. That's how he started his whole, you know, he wouldn't... He, from a historical point of view, I am imagining, if he doesn't go on a vision fast, then he has no, he doesn't know what his aim is. He doesn't know, he doesn't, he doesn't come up, he comes up out of the wilderness and starts talking about the kingdom of God. And, well, where did, how did he experience this? What, facing that sort of uh, Satan-like shadow that's coming up in the wilderness is what happens when you're out there on a vision fast. You can't hide from both your glory and your darkness. You cannot hide from it. And if you don't begin a deep and profound relationship with your darkness and your gold, if you want to look at it that way, your the gift you have and the shadow elements of that, then you don't know who you are and you probably won't have something like an aim, like uh, I'm here to, like Jesus, preach the kingdom of God or whatever. So it, it's like, you know, you say I'm going on a vision fast. People think, oh, that's aren't you just like taking a Lakota practice and mm. you know mm-hmm. pretending to be you know put a feather in your hair? And no, not really. Although the Lakota, there's much to learn from from their very ancient 
form of a, of the vision fast, but it's transcultural. Is my my point is, and they're ancient. They're absolutely ancient. A silent retreat is about as ancient as you can get. Um, and but we think I know contemporary people think they're so sophisticated, myself included, that I don't need any of that old crap. You know, I just mm. can't. I just Google what I need. No, you can't. You cannot Google what you need. You can Google information, but you don't need need information. Um, so anyway, I'm getting a, a little bit <laughs> no, fired up, but I like that. I, I you can. I just want to throw in one comment, <laughs> yeah, okay. which is when you when you said like the glory and the would you say the darkness? The darkness. I was just thinking of if you don't know psychologically the grandiosity of what you're capable of and dealing with your high part of your ego and what you really think you want and your shadow, then you're going to have you're well, you're gonna have a breakdown anyway, but you're gonna have a lot of problems. Yeah. And there's a quote that I'm gonna butcher, so bear with me, but I can't I think it's a Jung quote, which is something about what we don't discover in ourselves comes to us as fate mm. in the outside world. Yeah. So just on a pure sense, you can't Google your way out of it. Yeah. Like you can you can Google anything and you have information. We're swimming in information. We're in an information overload. Uh, but let's just say you find what you think is good information. That's great. Can you apply it? Yeah. And to apply it, I my personal opinion and what I'm getting from some of this nature-based work is there's got to be more work on your past. There's got to be more work on your story. And there's got to be work with what is going on now mm. in my psyche, in the deep waters. And what... And also just doing these practices can bring up the answer. Mm -hmm. um, in psychotherapy all the time, I get questions. Um, what should I do about this or that? And I usually just pause and smile and then they get annoyed because they know they know the answer, at least at that moment, mm -hmm. that seems right in their intuition. But yeah. their mind, you know, and so then, and then I, a lot of times I'll say, well, don't even answer that. Why don't, take some time, mm -hmm. go out, and don't even ponder that question mm -hmm. for a while. Put that on the shelf and see what comes to you. Mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, I'm getting into answers now, but the, mm -hmm. which I was trying not yeah. to do. But <laughs> I guess you know sometimes it's it's about the soul, but also sometimes it's about our circumstances and our soul is reacting to the circumstances. And sometimes we do have to change our circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, but it can be. I think midlife, yeah. concerning circumstances and soul, I think midlife as a kind of metaphor is the soul coming in and saying, change your life. Yeah. You know, have you ever read that Rilke poem where um, he's describing the head of Apollo or something? It's like a very detailed description of the head of this Greek god, like the contours and the colors, and as if he's staring at a statue. At right. That. But the very last line is, change your life. Mm. Like, he, part of that is when you experience the wonder and the awe of anything at all, something cuts through and says, what are you doing with your life? You know? Right. It's like, I remember what, I, went, I went to Wealthy Street Theater, which is a theater in town, to see the Sigaros film. And uh, Sigaros, this Icelandic band, and they had this film. And they're basically just going around playing their music in Iceland and there are all these nature shots. It's, it's amazing, but it cut through me like an arrow, which was something like, change your life. Do something meaningful, damn it. You know? And that's the soul 
waking up. But the same can be true, I think, also in like troubling circumstances. Why was I up there on stage giving a a, probably a really good sermon? I'm sure that was filled with good ideas. Sure. And yet I was experiencing this out of body. Who is that guy talking right now? Mm. That's the soul like lining up an arrow, running it straight through my life saying, time to change your life, you know, Um, and it's going to hurt and suffering is going to come, you know, or like we could think about cliche examples like the, like the, the accountant who all of a sudden his whole life has been buttoned up in such a significant and tight way. All of a sudden, one weekend in Las Vegas, and he blows his 401k, you know? And people think, oh, what a disaster. He should put his life back together mm-hmm. and apologize to his family. And I, the soul is saying something like, what the hell are you doing? You right. know? Who are you? And that's the unassimilated shadow, you know? All this, all this buttoning up was the inability to, to go to the wilderness and meet Satan, to use... To use uh, the sort of Jesus archetype of going into the wilderness, going in and facing what are these, these the shadow qualities of my own life that I, I refuse to even look at. And but I feel I feel like midlife is like the last chance, you know. Um, when people tell me I don't know what I believe anymore, I think thank God, you know, right. or or you know I'm struggling in my marriage. Well, if you're not, then there's a problem, you know. And so, on the one hand, I'm not celebrating people's suffering. And there's a lot of unnecessary suffering in the world, but, you know, it's also a great invitation. Yeah, so, yeah, we're, yeah, we're talking about suffering with meaning. We're talking about, we're not talking about people being persecuted on the border. We're talking not, about, we're talking about a person who has, you know, I guess, luxury and some structure to their life that maybe people a hundred years ago didn't even, couldn't even dream of and conveniences and are we waking up to, I also heard, am I waking up to my full humanness? Mm-hmm. If I'm going out to the desert for 40 days and I'm being tempted by the grandiosity, but also being maybe even slightly scared or whatever of of the darkness, um, I can embrace myself and I can embrace the the shadow or my my longing towards doing something that isn't in alignment with me or other or helping people around me or whatever it is. So if we're embracing our full human nature, then the pain of the circumstantial change or the pain of the difficult conversation or the pain of the career change or the, or the downsizing of um, whatever possessions you have pales in comparison to the meaning. And that, that brings us back to, People are meaning-seeking creatures, yeah. and we seek meaning, and we were talking about the nature-based stuff, because that's a way to get meaning, deep meaning, from varied, interesting things that are growing on this planet, yeah. and I feel like there's some interesting meaning in architecture sometimes, um, and there can, there's probably a whole bunch of stuff written on that, but when I drive around the city and look at the houses, it all looks similar and I, I don't really feel a, a deep connection uh, with that on a soul level, but you know, <laughs> yeah. and so and so we're seeking something richer and deeper, and and then and then it's about and then there's a I don't know. It's it's not as if all of a sudden you reach wholeness. That's not what I'm trying to say. Right. I'm trying to say that you know you you realize that you that we're doing work. We're doing our inner work, and if you're doing your inner work then 
then life doesn't necessarily go great, but you can be in alignment and feel some sense of, I don't know, purpose, some sense of meaning, some sense of you can sleep at night without drugs, you know, like yeah. not necessarily, but that, you know, that's, I know what you mean. Yeah. There's like a sense where the, there's enough meaning that it makes the suffering noble in a way. Right. Or, um, and I'm, again, I'm not here trying to justify people's un, unnecessary suffering in the world, but life is suffering. That's Buddhism. That's the first tenet. And, and that's something hard to face, you know, and we are mortal. We're going to die. I remember one practice we did at Animus um, called the Death Lodge, and I actually made one in my. I, I, I live. I have a little bit of land, so um, I made a little lodge, you know. And the practice. I won't describe the whole thing, but the simple is simple practice is to go out and imagine you're going to die, you mm. know. And what needs to get cleaned up? And and I, in my sort of imagination, I invited people into my Death Lodge that I needed to have conversations with. Not worrying about, do I actually need to have these conversations with these people? But what do I need to say? It's a way of facing the, the, um, the great call of meaning. Mm. Because, and my dad also happened to be dying during this time period, so it felt like a really rich practice. Like, my dad is dying, which is a way every day, when you look at someone's, someone that's dying, you're seeing your own mortality. You're seeing yes. this... this what we all share in common. And you know, that's going to happen to me and it's happening already. So change your life, you know, don't go back to sleep. Whatever you do, don't go back to sleep. And, um, and it sounds so morbid. It's so like anti-American, like, hey, you need to go, <laughs> go out and make a death lodge and contemplate your own mortality. And imagine if you were to die tomorrow, what, how would you want to live? You know, what needs to get put in order? You know, do you want to leave someone with a mess, the mess of your own life? Or do you want to put your life in order and take responsibility? And, and as soon as you're asking those kinds of questions, I think you're, you're dabbling in the meaning. You know, you're, you're, you're getting close to the meaning of your own life and maybe the meaning of life, period. I, I like that. I, I can't remember the quote, but something about there's some philosopher that said he keeps death in mind so that he might live. I can't remember what who said that. Yeah, but. or actually, I just even there's a famous statue of Jerome. He's mm-hmm. a Saint Jerome. He is the one that translated the Bible from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible, to Latin. Okay, and um, the the sculptures of him. It must be some story. I don't know that much about Jerome, but have him holding a skull in one hand and a pen in the other. Oh, you know, wow, what an image! Yeah. You know, what an image! I am gonna die. What is my life worth? I'm, I'm, I'm dust. I'm a single cloud passing over the vast desert, you know? Right. And yet I have this pen in my hand and what am I going to do with it? You know? Uh, I mean, this is someone that, that shaped Western culture, all of Western culture by translating the Bible from Greek to Latin. Wow. Um, for good and bad. I mean, we don't need to get into all that, but I'm just saying, yeah, he picked up the pen and part of that was because he was faced his own mortality. I am going to die. And it wasn't this pie in the sky, well, I'm going to be in heaven with God, walking around and chilling, you know? No, he was looking into the face of death. And anyway, so um, yeah, and maybe, you know, that's not something you need to 
to tell an eight-year-old, here's a right. skull, you know? <laughs> well, that, <laughs> hey, that's kids. the first part of life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We still have to develop a healthy ego. So let's right. go. So remember, for, your, for parents out there, we're not recommending this for children under 18. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, go, go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, that's just it. I think that's part of um, sometimes like uh, I was just doing some traveling for spring break and I saw these motorcycles pass me like at 140 miles an hour. And one of them, I'm making up the miles. Sure. It was a fast and I was going fast. Um, and one of them had on one of those camouflage backpacks, you know, like mm-hmm. from the army. And I, I, I was thinking about this. My brother was, is, is also in the army. And um, when you come back from the army, it's like you can never really again get that close to the to mortality. Mm. In, in such a concentrated fashion, like warfare, you know? I mean, on one hand, even though it's debilitating, and it was for my brother to be in these, you know, in Iraq, um, it's also exhilarating and, and forces you to face the fragility of your own life, and you see death around you all the time. And so what do you do when you come back, you know? Watch, you know, uh, 30 Rock? You know, that's entertaining, but, but so anyway, I'm bringing this up to say that, um, to go on a motorcycle at 140 miles an hour seems like a crazy thing unless you have tasted something even more, you know, uh, dangerous in a way. Um, anyway, why am I bringing that up? Because people of that age are in that transitional time period from Growing up with the, the the structures of childhood, and all of a sudden they're bumping into mortality and and the meaning of life, and they're right on the edge. And young people are struggling so much because um, it, we live in such a narcissistic and nihilistic world. And sometimes it's like, you know, can you swear on your podcast? You know, I don't, sure, go <laughs> yeah, for it. <laughs> he's like, you know, it's like, uh, fuck it. I'm just going to go 40, you know, 140 miles an hour because I don't even know what's meaningful anymore. And I was lied to in the army, you know, and also it provided some meaning. It's always that mixed, you know, camaraderie and meaning. And you want to fight for something noble. And some of this seems like a lie, you know, and you don't know what to do with this anymore. And, um, yeah, which is why people need, you know, which is why people need people like you in the world to say, all right, um, let's go, let's walk, let's take the dangerous path um, toward holding that skull and finding the pen. Let's take the dangerous path. Instead of symptom management, you know, which sometimes you need, like I'm not against sure. drugs. If people are really struggling, get some freaking drugs right? so you can get healthy enough to hold the skull in one hand and find the pen, you know? Not to turn this into like, sure. the, the, but the you just triaged one. very well. Yes, <laughs> yeah. we, if to do this, you some people you know are in an unstable mental state. So if you are, please get help immediately, and then you can go on. And and then when you feel like you don't have to be stable, but when you get to a point where you're not at risk, yeah, then we indulging in the dialogue about what am I going to do with my time, yeah, and what actions am I going to take. Think about what the world could do with someone who was unafraid to go 140 miles an hour and do a wheelie on the highway. What, what could the world do if that kind of capacity to face danger was put toward more noble, meaningful, and enriching possibilities, you know? 
We need more people like that. Not reckless people, but I don't know, like who, who's, who, who have found some courage, but are putting it toward the most meaningful things in life, you know? Who, who are taking a, who are taking an alternate path. Um, you were talking about young people and I'm all the time faced with the disillusionment of young people in my practice and, and their parents, but we'll go with the, with the young people, which is, um, all of a sudden they're 18 or 23 and they're graduated college and they say, and the parents say, well, here's the path. Um, you know, it's getting more competitive out there, which means that to get those good jobs, to get you a good house, to get you a good education, to make you marketable, whatever, to get a good car, to have a good partner, you've got to do this, 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 and this, and very structured, very concrete, very uh, rigid, okay? And the young person going, what the hell? Mm-hmm. I just went through, first of all, I went through all the school, which is super rigid, and then I went to college, which is semi-rigid, though it depends mm-hmm. what college you go to. And then, you know, there's structure there. And now I want to explore, like, who I want to be. And you're telling me I don't have time. Mm-hmm. You're telling me I'm 23 and I don't have time to figure out who I am because I need to hurry up because other people are investing in real estate and other people are becoming accountants and I'm going to be left behind economically mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. And so then they, they're in the, it almost seems like an extreme. Mm-hmm. And it is sort of an extreme between choosing a safe path and, and to whatever the, their their culture or their parents or or whatever television is telling them or the internet and choosing almost a very risky path. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the work that you're talking about in the nature base and what I'm trying to do in therapy is hold on to the opposites. Yes, there's that tension for sure. Mm-hmm. But where where can you find your unique way of dealing with this problem? Because this is a problem. Yeah. This this is something that is it it is going to ruin your soul if you just pick one blindly or the yeah. other. I mean, not ruin, but devastate for a long time until you come out of it or whatever. And it, you know, it could lead you into a slumber, mm-hmm. you know? And so if we, yes. And so I would say, yes, it, it, we need more people that are willing to, when, they, when they're ready, when their gestation time comes to say, I'm doing this, I'm going for it. And I mean, you can think of I don't want to name names, but just certain people who didn't take a traditional path or people that took a traditional path and then said, what the heck am I doing with my, what the heck, I'm censoring myself. Yeah. What the hell am I doing with my life? Yeah. I need a complete shift and now I have a mission and now I have a vision for at least right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we, we're all, we're all seeking that. And I mean, I mean, we're seeking friends like that, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm just I just universalized everyone in the audience. Okay, but I'm seeking that. I'm seek. I yeah. would love to see more of that. I would love to see uh, our leaders who care about what's happening to the children that are being born right now, mm-hmm. um, and and thinking forward instead of what are my what's my bank account look like or whatever. Yeah, yeah. that's that's the nihilism. It's all about money or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, definitely. The, the culture is becoming more and more nihilistic, um, and and narcissistic at the same time. They're they're holding hands. Um, and I think that's you're probably right. I'm sure that increases the anxiety of of young people saying, is this it? Is this it really? Um, and anyway, not to not to I almost feel like sometimes the soul is a pretty patient. Whatever the soul is, it's it's pretty patient. And it's not gonna give up. And so you know, if you're, you know, 30 years old and you basically were a a good boy or a good girl your whole life, 
it doesn't mean like you've ruined anything. It's just sure. like, that's a good point. you know, it's just like, all right, that's the path that you, you chose, but the soul's not going to give up. Same if you're 65 and you're, you mm-hmm. retired and you're like, I did it. And all of a sudden, after that first day of golf, you're like, man, this is amazing. The second day of golf. And then pretty soon you're like, wait, this, this, this was the, this is not working for me. And, and there's the soul saying, all right, change your life. I almost feel like, um, maybe dreams are like that too. You know, it's like the never ending influx of unconscious material that you know very little about and it comes every night. So, um, I don't know. I, it, it's like, uh, how people come is, I don't know exactly what I'm saying. I guess I'm sort of expressing a kind of faith in the, that the soul has, um, it, you don't get one shot, you know? Well, I was um, about to say that, yeah, because yeah. I think in my statement, I sounded a little extreme, <laughs> like your soul was going to be devastated forever, which sounds... Well, good, but it's possible. It, it could be. Yeah. It could put you into a slumber, but I guess what I, I am also hearing the trust, which is that even a, even underneath everything, your soul will try to speak to you, whether mm-hmm. it's through dreams. I love keeping a dream journal. I've been doing that for a while, and just trying to learn from them and reflect off of the dreams. But whether it's through dreams or through life events, people have multiple opportunities to awaken to something larger and a larger meaning. Mm-hmm. Whether they take it or not is ultimately up to them. But I do believe, I, I have that same trust, I suppose, because you're, you're right, you never know when somebody's going to have that shift and what's going to bring it on. And that's that's limiting our control. I mean, as a therapist, I have to trust the, I used when I first started the work, and I worked with people that were really in uh, dangerous situations, um, in in what would be called labeled dangerous parts of town and big cities. I, I lived in. I had to trust when I went home that I did the best I could to help them, mm-hmm. but that they ultimately had responsibility for their circumstance. Yeah. And now I'm working with people that aren't so much in danger of physical danger, but more in danger of feeling like. They're wasting their life, and they don't know what the point of it is. And um, mm-hmm. where, what is my, where, where is my passion? I've lost my passion, and I think many times you will lose it, and we have to regain it. But if we're listening, there's clues about where our focus might go. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well said. Speaking of clues, because I think clues is a good. A very good metaphor. Like the soul gives clues, dreams, numinous experiences, challenges, life situations. You have life itself that, you know, is the terrain for clues. We've talked about nature as what's my experience in the wild world and what am I drawn to and, or repulsed by? And these are, these can be clues for the kind of your own map. One of them that was really influential, influential for me was Mary Oliver's poem, The Journey. I bumped into that a number of years ago. Maybe I'd heard it before, but you know how it is. Like you can hear right. something and, and you don't hear it. And But the opening line, one day you finally knew what you had to do and you began, troubled me. Like, mm. wait a minute. And this was when I was like a, a big time pastor, you know. And here I am and I'm drawn to this line. One day you finally knew what you had to do and you began. And the beginning is like, like, all right, what, it, what am I supposed to begin here? Like, I'm in the middle of my life. I'm supposed to be, you know, killing it or whatever, like amassing whatever. I don't know. Like, um, but there, 
the, but that's what drew me. And it was a kind of major clue in my life. One day, and I did not know what that was. I didn't know what the thing was. I just kept wrestling with it. I wrote it on my like whiteboard in my office, the whole poem. One day you finally knew what you had to do and you began. And I just would read it, read it. I'd read it the next day. I'd read the next day. Someone, I'd read it out loud. One day you finally knew what you had to do and you began. And and I, I don't know if I would say, maybe, maybe it was a mixture. On the one hand, I think I was looking for the answer. Like, I need the answer. I want to begin. But another part of me, that was also just the beginning, just to sit in this kind of lo- space of longing and grief at the same time. Grieving, I, I didn't regret the choices that I had made so much, like, but there was a kind of deeper grief to it that... Um, how have I fooled myself and other people maybe as part of the grief, maybe a deeper grief was something like, um, what does my soul want to do in the world or, or be in the world that I'm trying to keep at bay? There's a grief to that, you know, uh, one day you finally knew what you had to do and you begin. And then the next line is, and the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Hmm. And that's what, I mean, I was experiencing that directly. You know, I would bring up, I don't know if I should do this or that, or bring up my questions or problems, and the voices were shouting bad advice. Whatever the advice was, stick with it, or everybody has hard times, or, you know. Um, or the, the probably the more problematic voices were the ones that were in my own head, shouting their, their mm. bad advice, their patterns and their strategies, and their strategies for anxiety, and their, and their, 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 um, sometimes I would go back and forth between inflation, I guess it would be called, like complimenting myself, you know, as a pattern t- to the opposite, whatever the opposite is, you don't know what you're talking about or, um, you know, it's, it, and back and these are the voices shouting their bad advice. You're doing awesome or you really suck. Neither of those, you know, um, and each, uh, what's the next line? Mend my life, each voice cried. Like, fix my problems. Take on my point of view, whether that's like a voice in my own psyche or externally, like you work for a big church. Fix my life. Mend my life. Make it better. Don't go anywhere because we need you to do fill in the blank. Mm. And everybody has some version of that, even as a mother or a father. Men, your kids are like, mend my life. Mend my life. Right. And on the one hand, that's what you have to do. On the other hand, that's also not what you have to do. Right. <laughs> uh, you have to put food on the table and you have to be as as caring and compassionate as you can and you're not there to mend every wound. So you're actually creating them as you as you move right. along. But anyway, one day you finally knew what you had to do and you began that the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice saying, mend my life. Each voice cried. But you didn't stop. She says, you kept going. You knew what you had to do. And then she says, um, the... Um, it was a wild night. It was already late. That's what she says. It was already late. And I took that to mean like, okay, late in life. Mm-hmm. All right. I wish I would have done this when I was 21, but I didn't. All right. It was already late and a wild night and there were branches and sticks in the road, something like that. And then she says, um, but slowly um, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. That's the image. The stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And you heard a voice that you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company. And like even now, that line, I feel just a little emotion, like some grief. Just, yeah, that's the thing. 
this voice, like it, almost as if there's a voice beneath your voice. And, and I was mm. a person who talked for a living, you know, gave sermons. And, um, but there's a voice beneath that that you, maybe you can discover. And it's going to come, it's going to burn through the sheets of clouds, you know. Um, and you only slowly recognize it as your own, which I think is like, I think sometimes I falsely believe, and I think other people do, that if I go on this kind of soul path, boom, I'm going to recognize my real voice, my real calling, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to get out there after this weekend retreat and put it into the world, you know? No, it's much more like you slowly recognize this voice as your own. And she says, uh, it keeps you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. I think that's the line, something like that, as you walk deeper and deeper into the world, determined to save the only life you can save. And that's sort of the end of the poem. Oh. Something like that. I like that. Yeah. Um, so the, a voice began to burn through the sheets of clouds that kept you um, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to save the only life that you can save. It's, I don't quite have the line, but that for me was like a rudder in in uh in the sea of um of unknowing that I was going through and it didn't tell me what to do but it said something like keep going um and a lot of bad advice is going to come your way and but if you keep going keep going deeper and deeper into the world determined to save the only life you can save something like a voice will begin to to keep you company and I began to taste just little bits of that. There it is. And I tasted when I wasn't <laughs> bringing that voice forth. Um, but anyway, that was like, I think poets um, poets and artists, may, maybe may, they make a pact with, with the truth. Mm. And it's like, I'm going to tell the truth even if I don't make money. <laughs> I mean, when, right. <laughs> poets don't make money. Um, and so there's something worth bending your ear toward, I mean, I'm not saying again, everybody needs to read poetry or Mary Oliver, but there's something sure. about listening to those voices who say, I'm going to, I'm going to make a, de- uh, a deal with the truth here. Um, I'm going to speak from the deeper soul place that serves me and the world um, that we really, really need right now in, in this, in the ticker culture with that ticker information on the bottom of the mm. screen that's just basically bullshit that that this is whatever is urgent is what's true and needed in the world and the poet says something like um there's a deeper urgency you know beneath the ticker there's some sort of uh, of um wellspring that um i'm in service of or or I'm an agent of dipping down into this wellspring that's much older than anything that CNN can come up with, you know. Uh, so anyway, that 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 for me was a was a clue that 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 kind of voice. And I think um, I I sometimes will encourage people to take those curios those promptings of curiosity, like why do I keep listening to so and so? Could be music, you know, music. Sure. Uh, certain films or filmmakers, certain artists, but treat it more than just like, I think their work is profound, but more as like a a clue for the soul. How is this in some way like a rudder in your, what is it calling you into or what is it mirroring back to you? You know, something like that. So anyway, 
Yeah. What is this working inside of me? What what work is beginning because of mm-hmm. this? And what is what spark has just started to slowly glow? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I love I love that story, and it's a great poem. And yeah, I mean, I guess I don't really have a summary from that other than to say thank you for sharing that. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. And, um, you know, my personal feeling is conversations matter and real conversations that involve some measure of listening. And, um, it's in those kind of weird alchemical mixtures that new things emerge. And, um, I felt like I was learning also as we were, we were, we were, you know, going back and forth. So thanks. Oh, absolutely. It's my, been my pleasure, Kent. And I, I am, and just, I'll just say this for people that have just now found you and if they've listened this far they are also <laughs> hopefully wanting to be part of the long form format yeah and i always think rich roll two and a half hours pretty much every time and we're getting close all right uh, but we're not that far but <laughs> i wanted to say i've been learning from you and your writings and also your podcast is fantastic so i'm Thanks. i'm glad and about from that and and this conversation as well um was yeah always better than my expectations and so I would just say for your listeners, I would, you know, Kent's podcast link will be in my uh, notes or whatever that mm-hmm. are down there and check it out. I think you'll, I think you'll like it. Thanks. And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Krauss. I really enjoyed my conversation with Kent Dobson, and I think he's got a lot of valuable things and resources to say. Another way to find out about Kent Dobson is to go to his website at www.kentdobson.com or check out his podcast, Hints and Guesses, which is on most podcast applications. If you're in need of a counseling appointment, don't hesitate to make an appointment with a counselor in your local area. You can also make an appointment with people in Grand Rapids at my office, which is Health for Life Grand Rapids, www.healthforlifegr.com. And you can also find us now under our new wing, the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids. And I discussed a lot of nature-based activities. I would recommend that you do not do any of these activities unless you are under the supervision or guidance of a well-known nature-based therapist. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest. And while these are based upon their experience and things they have read, they should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on the subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line immediately, which is 1-800-273-8255. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please share with your friends and family. Yeah.
Flight. 